The reason I like light bulb jokes is I feel that they're a form of cultural haiku. Uh, how many Californians does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, five, one to do it, four to share the experience. <laughs> Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are exploring the changing rules of business leadership and how CEOs are navigating this change. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Michal Avram. Mahal, you want to tell us why Reed Hoffman was telling light bulb jokes at the beginning of this episode? Because they're funny. <laughs> uh, but really, the reason is that this has become kind of his own little Turing test for ChatGPT. And what he realized with GPT-4 is that it's finally this technology AI is at a stage where it can tell some pretty funny and, you know, compelling and human-like light bulb jokes. And he's tried this before with other iterations, um, other technologies, and that hasn't been the case. So this was kind of like a little bit of an aha moment for him. This is ready for prime time. There is no question that AI is the topic of the moment. Every conversation I have with a business leader these days, sooner rather than later, gets into AI. It's sort of chat GPT, I think, has captured everyone's imagination. Yeah, and that's why we thought it would be a good topic to discuss on Leadership Next. Reed knows a lot about generative AI and AI more broadly um, for many other reasons. He is the co-founder of LinkedIn. Perhaps he's best known for that, but he's also a partner at the VC firm Greylock. And he was an early investor in OpenAI, the company that, of course, developed ChatGPT. And he's written a book called Impromptu, Amplifying Our Humanity with AI. It's a great book, but what's distinctive about it is he actually used ChatGPT4 to help him write the book. I think Reed is out to prove that singularity is here. He's well <laughs> on his way. And he had a lot of really interesting things to say, you know, uh, how this technology is being applied today, what it can do in the future. And, you know, he's also kind of like the light bulb joke. He's he's fun to talk to. He is fun to talk to. Let's go to it. Here's our conversation with the real Reed Hoffman. This is not a clone. This is not ChatGPT. <laughs> this is Reed Hoffman himself. Reed, welcome to Leadership Next. Great to be here. All right. I'm going to start with your book since that came out recently. I received a personalized copy uh, just a little while back. And I'm curious, you know, obviously you've been really early on in all things uh, generative AI, but what prompted you to write this book and especially the way you went about it? I'd love to hear. Well, I love the fact that you use prompted, given impromptu is the title of the book. Uh, I'm sure with a general literary wit, that was a deliberate of course. Uh, word. No. <laughs> exactly. It started with a kind of realization when I got access to GPT-4 uh, July, August last year. I realized that this was going to be, that the, that the watershed moment that I'd been predicting was upon us. And I wanted to kind of demonstrate uh, some of the my thinking on it, and my thinking, you know, reflected in the book, is that artificial intelligence is more amplification intelligence than artificial intelligence. And I said, well, how do I show that? Not just tell it, but show it myself. And I was like, well, I could write a book, and I could write a book using GPT-4 as my co-author, the first book about AI with AI as a co-author. 
And then I said, okay, well, what should it be? And I was like, well, maybe a travelogue through the different areas of human concern and experiences. And obviously you can't get them all, but to select a set of the important ones. And then the personalized copy uh, that you got is as I was starting to work on that, I realized that among the many transformations that AI as a personal assistant, uh, a personal intelligence helping you brings to you is you can do this mass kind of book where you also are doing one-to-one. And so you can do prompts that are specific to a person, have the book be specific to a person. And I was like, okay, well, let me do that too. I want to hear also about the kind of the aha moment for you, um, not just for the book, but for the technology. And what's your deal with light bulb jokes? (laughs) Has this been like a long time thing for you? (laughs) Well, that's in the personalized content thing. And the reason I like light bulb jokes is I feel that they're a form of cultural haiku, right? You know, how many surrealists does it take to change a light bulb? You know, fish. Uh, How many Californians does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, Five. One to do it, four to share the experience. You know, things that that kind of like encapsulate in this little haiku moment. You know, it it might be a, a bad stereotype, but kind of a stereotype lens that fits within our kind of cultural experience. And it was one of the things that was amazing about GBD4 is that it is it has a sense of humor, um, and it can at least do kind of dad jokes, of which you know light bulb jokes can also be a version of. <laughs> and then for me, the aha moment started years back. It was part of uh, helping stand up OpenAI. And you're you're one of the earliest investors in in the yes. company. We should say yes, exactly. I I helped uh, Sam and Elon and others set it up, and then joined the board. And then in February you know, felt that there would be uh, potential conflicts between all the startups asking for special access and all the rest, uh, which, and until I left the board, I was like, I can't help you. And, you know, it's like, well, given my Greylock job as an investor. And so it's like, well, that's not usually the answer I want to have. And so we talked about it and Sam said, look, you can continue to help the company uh, very well, not being on the board and I'll continue to do that and kind of fit my fiduciary and board responsibilities as such. And, it's like we're realizing finally the benefit of the transistor. Or if you wanted to look at it in a different lens, um, Steve Jobs said the computer is a bicycle for the mind, and now we have a steam engine for the mind, mm. uh, and we're mm. having a cognitive industrial revolution. Mm. And I knew that that would come, and exactly which year and exactly what shape. Like I thought it would come with a launch of GPT-4, and actually since they launched ChatGPT with 3.5 as the backdrop, and everyone could suddenly start using it. It was actually the chat GBT that kicked off the, oh my gosh, you know, this important moment is here now. And it was with a light bulb joke. <laughs> well, it wasn't with the light bulb joke. It was, that was part of my general exposure. I mean, I was also doing things like I did this mini series on gray matter of uh, fireside chatbots podcast interviewing chat GBT, you know, so 3.5. And one of the things that I I used it because I'd been using GPT-4 to do this was what's the, how would you apply Wittgenstein's theory of following a rule and language games to large language models? And the fact that it gave me coherent, interesting responses was stunning because it already means we have uh, an AI that has superpowers because most human beings on the planet cannot answer that question yeah. uh, coherently. Yeah. And so it was the fact that I could was was just like, you know, mind-blowing and 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 yeah. awesome. Reed, uh, I've been talking to a lot of of CEOs of large companies 
since generative AI popped into my consciousness, which was much later than it popped into yours, but I'd say last November. So I've had many of these conversations. To a person, they agree with you that this is transformative technology. But I have to say most of them, maybe even the vast majority of them, don't quite know how. Like, they're still not quite sure what the hell do I do with this. Can you provide some guidance? What the hell do they do with this? So um, three lenses. First lens that I published last fall with my uh, partner, Samo Tometi from Greylock, uh, which is every professional activity, obviously there's wide ranges from you know journalism, law, medicine, you know engineering, research analysis, investing, and just anything. Every of these activities will have a essentially a personal AI assistant or a co-pilot within two to five years. Mm. And that means that that amplification, that assistant will be between useful and essential. Mm. That itself gives you industry transformation because if you think about every industry has a bunch of professional activities and that amplification and that change will change. Um, you know, I wrote an essay last year when Dolly came out saying, look, this is like having Photoshop. Like if you're a graphic designer and you don't know how to use this image generation, it's like you're saying, well, I'm not, I'm not a graphic designer, just like I didn't know how to use Photoshop. It's kind of a similar kind of amplification. So that's lens one. Second lens is there's going to be a shift in capabilities kind of in the more general sense, which is kind of think of as research assistants. So what, what these things are is like a research assistant that gives you an immediate answer. Now, the immediacy is amazing and important. Now, it'll also be, although, you know, OpenAI, Microsoft, others are working on this, occasionally quite wrong, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm glad you said wrong and not hallucinations <laughs> or some sort of word yes. that sort of fuzzes it over. It's incorrect. Yes, exactly. It's incorrect. And it's incorrect with seeming vigor and strength and, <laughs> and deep articulation. We have some journalists um, like that. <laughs> yes. Well, it's not My an kids are like that. <laughs> yes. It's not an unhuman characteristic. And then the third is how products and services will actually, in fact, be changed. For example, let's think of like one of the areas where I think there will be substantial job impact, which is customer service, because it's a cost center and anything that's a pure cost center, people will try to figure out, well, if you 10x every person and you 10x every customer service rep, well, then we'll have 10% of them. But say, for example, you're looking at that function, you're going, well, what if we could now make this function not just a, what's the cheapest way we could get you off the phone, but we could make it a, a relationship building moment, a brand building moment, a something where we could help you and and kind of interact and give things to you from our particular brand perspective and build our relationship with you. Well, that's now available yeah. as kind of yeah. a new product. And Mahal, if I could follow up on that, because that's a, that's a great, uh, those three frames give you a great sense of what it can do. Can you just hit a few more notes about what it can't do? Obviously, it can't fact check. Mm. We've established yes. that. But it also can't really reason or, yes. you know, somebody said it doesn't do math. Can you talk a yes. little bit about the limitations? Even, by the way, Reed, in your book, you mentioned, I think, asking um, GPT-4 for the fifth line of the Gettysburg Address and how challenging that is for the technology, which I found yes. really interesting. Counting. Yes, exactly. One thing, and like easy way to screw these large language models up is ask them about prime numbers, <laughs> things that human beings can understand pretty well. And it's very easy to get them to be uh, equally insistent about something that's wrong on prime numbers. So one cautionary note, 
on, and I will express limitations, is that the technology is evolving mm -hmm. a lot. Like, so for example, both OpenAI and Microsoft are working to have current information. They're working to reduce hallucination. They're working to have, you know, kind of sources of information in ways that its error rate kind of in general, more approaches a human being's error rate uh, in <laughs> oh, these things. Can't we do better you know, than that? Because remember, <laughs> yes. well, because remember, you know, our standard is human being, <laughs> right? And that is not error error free. And so, um, so you know, math, uh, usually when you ask, because it's trained to try to be super interesting in its response to you, like what, what would be really compelling and interesting to you? And if you ask it a question it doesn't really know very much about, like if I said, maybe it would know, Alan, your biography, but maybe it doesn't. And I'd say, wow, you know, did Alan, like I'll ask it a question, which, which it kind of presumes a yes. Did Alan Murray create a, a really interesting journalism video game? And I'll go, oh, shit, maybe it did. Maybe it did. And I don't know about it. And then we'll create this Wikipedia page about like how you created a video game <laughs> about journalism. <laughs> right? Ooh, and you're like, scary. okay. <laughs> yes, that's interesting. But so that's the kind of thing. And that's also, you say, well, give me citations. And it goes, okay, well, you really want citations. So we'll make some citations. And you're like, well, but those citations are incorrect. <laughs> right? Like you wouldn't look at the citations. And here is the most funny one. Um, one of the personalized books that I sent out, which I didn't cross-check some of the prompts I cross-checked because I wanted to see, but other prompts I didn't cross-check because I thought, oh, it'll just get this right. It's fine. So the create a music list for you. Well, one of the music lists that created, created three fictional songs. Like oh those songs God. don't exist. Oh my right? God. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I wasn't cross-checking that because I didn't think it would get that wrong. But why does it do that? I mean, is it just aiming to please humans? Like what, why, why does it make up stuff? Uh, fundamentally that because it's trained to be generative and creative and interesting. And obviously through like algorithm and human feedback and else, we're trying to train it to be true as well, in which case it frequently is true. Um, and it's safer when it's not factual stuff. It's safer when it's like principles, like, you know, what would be the questions one would ask in uh, due diligence of a technology company of type X, you know, hardware, software, et cetera. It'll be pretty good about like the general class questions and so forth, because as opposed to being factual about it and going, oh, I don't know, so I'm going to invent because I'm creative. It'll go, okay, here's the stuff, and it'll be very, very good. And so that's the the, the reason why as a co-pilot, as a personal assistant, it's really good. Now, I think these are solvable problems. I think the math stuff is solvable problems. I don't think this is a these will always be this way, but it is it's kind of a snapshot in time about how to use them as a system, how to use them as a transformation of work. And that's, again, one of the reasons why I say, well, well, I'll just have, um, you know, GBD4 do my marketing. Well, well, that could be a bad idea. Jason Gerzadis, the CEO-elect of Deloitte U.S., is the sponsor of this podcast and joins me today. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Alan. It's great to be here. I have a sense, Jason, from conversations on Leadership Next and elsewhere that business leaders today better understand the benefits of having a diverse set of voices at the management table. But what are some of the lessons you've learned through Deloitte's own DEI journey? Yeah, lots of lessons learned. I think we've certainly made progress. We feel like that's a function of a couple of things. 
Deloitte is very proud to have published twice a transparency report that sets forward long-term expectations for the diversity of our workforce and how we hold ourselves accountable. That is meant to be, and I think has served to be, a role model stance for us to take and one that we encourage all businesses to replicate. The second is to get specific. In addition to transparency, the specific objectives around gender diversity, around Black and Hispanic Latinx, as well as other cohorts that we have really established not only a recruitment and retention, but also advancement goals for. And finally, adding to the mix how we intend to hold ourselves accountable for supplier diversity, as well as longer term ambitions for us in this space. So our experience is somewhat emblematic of what a lot of large organizations go through, but for us, the commitment and transparency, as well as the specificity around cohorts has made a difference. And we've seen positive results in the last two years that we're hoping to build upon. Do we declare success? Absolutely not, but it's made all the difference for us. Jason, thanks for your perspective and thanks for sponsoring Leadership Next. Thank you. I think it's fascinating that you kind of have your own little personal Turing test for this technology, which is the light bulb joke. Um, and clearly one of the reasons I think that you know, this has exploded into kind of the mainstream consciousness is because it's so creative and so fun to interact with. But there's a lot of concern. There's a lot of fears, um, disruption to the labor market and call it amplification or artificial or whatever you want to call it. How are, I mean, how should CEOs be talking about this to their employee base? We're seeing that IBM CEO has already come out and said that, you know, this will impact 30% of jobs in a, in a certain category, but there's a lot of fears. There's, you know, the writer's strike in, in Hollywood. Like that's one of the fears is that they're going to be replaced. I mean, Alan and I could be replaced, you know, <laughs> not anytime soon. <laughs> well, maybe next time we'll have your co-writer. On. <laughs> Thank you for that. Reed. We'll take that to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> but, but really like how are CEOs, thinking about this? How should they be thinking about this? What's your advice to them? And, you know, also curious to hear, these are a lot of questions, sorry, but are tech CEOs looking at it differently than non-tech CEOs, do you think? Tech CEOs are probably a little bit more familiar and a little bit ahead of the curve, but probably it's similar as a group, as a tribe. So one lens into this is to think, say you you said, okay, with these assistants, these co-pilots give everyone 10x superpowers. Look through a company. Say, well, you got salespeople. You're going to have less of them because you have 10x superpowers? No, 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 We like sales. You're like even 10x sales or whatever else. Now, the jobs will be different. Like, so for example, oh, we hired these people to be running our digital ad campaigns and it's a lot of form filling and all the rest. Well, all the form filling stuff is going to be, you know, really amplified. We don't need as much people doing that. We'll need more people doing, you know, things like thinking about like, well, what are the other ways to think about it and what to do? And if you walk through most of the areas, product, engineering, operations, finance, even legal, by the way, for other things, people are very hopeful that legal bills will go down. But you go through the whole thing and you go, well, actually, in fact, that doesn't necessarily, it changes, it transforms the nature of the human job, but doesn't necessarily go, okay, now we can slash and burn. Now, the IBM CEO's comments, I think that was a little bit of a, a kind of a, let me justify in a difficult market the fact that I'm kind of doing layoffs and, and freezes and so forth, and let me blame AI. And I think we'll see a lot of that. It's way too early to be saying 30% of this, this job function is going away. The, the tools aren't there yet. They might get there. And if you think you have no upside in your business and you only have to, to cut you know, cost and downside, well, then that will be a natural thing of, of how you increase profits. So I'm not saying it's a 
clean sailing, blue skies, you know, et cetera, et cetera. These transformational moments will be real. There will be job transformation. There will be some jobs that will be that will be off for this. And navigating all that's really important, both as CEOs and as societies. Now, one of the things I love about AI as a technology, and again, part of the reason why I did impromptu was to say, well, AI can be part of the solution. Like, say, take customer service. You say, well, all right, a bunch of customer service people are not going to have jobs. All right, well, how do you reskill them? How do you help match them to other jobs? How do you uh, give them superpowers to do other jobs? Well, AI is an answer on all three of those things. And so when you say, well, what should we be doing as leaders? What should we be doing as government people? What should we do? It's like, well, let's help people. Let's use the technology to help do the transition to uh, being on an, in the full swing of the cognitive industrial revolution. Reed, you're an optimist and Mahal and I are optimists. And and I think there's- so, Wait, histor- why did you lump me in with the optimist here? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mahal is sometimes an optimist. Sometimes. <laughs> and I think there's some there's historical experience to support that optimism. But I want to take you down a dark hole here for a minute. I mean, mm. I, I've been a journalist since I was nine years old. Mahal has been a journalist her whole life. Uh, we were raised on a great respect for facts. We believe in facts. We think facts actually exist, that there is, you know, in some areas there is, you know, discernible truth. And we were trained uh, on techniques to find it. That's obviously deteriorated in recent years. Social media certainly has something to do with that. The fact that everybody is in our business now has something to do with that. There are lots of other reasons that you can cite But I'm really worried about this, that this was loosed upon the world with zero respect for facts. And what is the effect going to be on our society as we continue to devalue and undercut the factual basis of our interactions? Well, as a philosopher by training, um, I am also uh, a great believer in truth with a capital T and facts with a capital F. I wouldn't say it was loose with a zero respect. There was a lot of effort to try to get factual information in its sort. This doesn't mean it's perfect. Its error rate is higher than we would like, for sure. Also, by the way, there's easy ways to do this. Uh, there's this whole stack of how the tech is going, which is like there's going to be this area of meta prompting. And if you put meta prompts in that have something, you say, well, this is a fact and use this as part of your response, it will then conform to that fact. So I don't think the zero regard for facts, I think it's a it's a nice uh, slogan, but not true, uh, speaking of facts. But, but on the other hand, I completely concur. Oh my gosh, have we been having a degradation of civil discourse, of the importance of truth-seeking, of discerning facts, and that we need to be there. And then we need to figure out how we get there as kind of human beings. And by the way, AI can help with that. So for example, um, one of the things that I most liked during the election, you know, this is a Twitter pre-Elon, was one of the things that Twitter was doing, which is say, hey, if this if something seemed very off expert consensus, it would put a little box around it and say, look here to get the facts, right? It wasn't saying this is wrong. You can't say the moon is made out of blue cheese or 2020 was an unfair election or whatever. But you could say, hey, if you're saying it, we're going to put this little box around it to direct people to say, over here is where you can find facts. And that (laughs) kind of thing is the kind of thing that AI can help with a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a more of a human problem to solve the problem that you're talking about, Alan. And I want to solve it, and I think we should, and I think it's necessary, because I think what we should be doing, and this is one of the things I love about good media, of which you know part of the reason I'm on this podcast is I agree with you guys on this stuff, is to say we should be collectively learning. 
Like there is such a thing as facts, there is such a thing as a truth, and we should be learning towards that together. And it's an infinite journey, but that's a good thing to do. And so I'm strongly bullish on that. that that's good. And if and I did overstate my question. And if I did, it's because I asked ChatGPT to write my uh, short biography, and it made me 10 years older than I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> I think you are so personally offended. By I was that. offended. Made you <laughs> I think, you know, the hope is obviously that that this is not only that the people who are leading the charge here are going to be thoughtful about it, but also that the regulatory forces that be actually make some smart decisions here. We'll see. But in the meantime, it's just it's moving so fast, which makes it so much more difficult, right, to do all that good stuff in conjunction. As an investor, though, putting your investor hat on, huge opportunity, you know, open AI aside, I feel like as a journalist, every other pitch, I guess, actually all pitches I get have some generative AI slant, at least like what happens next? Are you just, are you seeing, you know, boundless opportunity? Is there some shakeout? What percentage of it is kind of BS? Like who's really doing utilizing generative AI? Well, it's just like any of these major tech waves, even though I think AI is the most major of my lifetime in part because it's a crescendo. It builds on the internet, it builds on mobile, it builds on cloud, and it's an amplifier across all of it. But, but more major had, than any one of those individually. Yes, because it's it's an amplifier, right? It, it, it amplifies on top of them. But remember, like internet, we had all kinds of crazy stuff. Mobile, we had all kinds of crazy stuff. And so it'll be a bunch of crazy stuff too. It'll be like, there'll be... You know, like it's not really AI, it's overstated claims, it doesn't really do what it claims to do. We'll have all that stuff. That's that's human entrepreneurship when everyone's running towards a gold rush. You'll also, of course, have many, many amazing things. And so that's a, like super important things for us to, to kind of move forward on. And of course, then the investing theory, you know, is well uh, across all this. Now, I had the the, the fortune of, of position to, to have seen this early. So we at Greylock started investing years ago on this stuff, which, you know, is like Adept and Inflection and Cresta and Snorkel and all these all these companies and all of our, our portfolio companies started pivoting towards kind of the generative AI increase in their features, you know, like Tome and Coda and everything else well before the public market realized it because, you know, it's one of the benefits of having a lucky venture uh, firm along with you. And I think there's a ton of stuff that's still available. It's not just like, oh, really good investment was two years ago or three years ago. Um, I think there's a bunch. You have to be discerning about a lot of the principles that still apply within business. Like what's your go-to-market? What's your competitive differentiation? You know, why is it that this will be a good, for example, startup product versus a good product from a larger company? Because there is, you know, there are some places here, not just the usual set of customers, kind of in-depth enterprise relations, but some other advantages that the large companies have is, well, if you're going to be training a compute on a multi-billion dollar computer, you know, large companies do multi-billion dollar computers much better than startups. So you have to kind of sort through all that as an investor. But, you know, I think there is just, uh, what is it? There's gold in those hills. Yeah. So. There's one other issue that I think we need to address. And that is, what does this do to intellectual property? If somebody mm -hmm. can take this podcast and create the Reed Hoffman voice, how do you stop that? Or if somebody is painting pictures in the style of, how does the artist stop that? What is the, what is, I was, I was talking to somebody who's pretty deep into the technology who said the first big challenge of the Supreme Court on this will be a copyright challenge. So what's the answer to that? Well, I think we're going to have to work out new law 
for it. I think the old law won't apply exactly right because, by the way, if I created a painting, you know, me in the style of X, that's allowed. If I, you know, said, "Hey, I'm gonna," uh, I'm totally incompetent at this, so I couldn't do this. But um, I was going to to take either of you and try to like like voice impersonate you. And that's allowed. You know, I can't say that I'm you, but I could say that it's in the style of, and that's an allow, allowed thing. So. Now I have this tool that I'm doing with it that suddenly gives me the superpowers to do it that suddenly was previously limited. All right, what, what am I, you know, am I allowed to do it in those ways now that I, that, that because I have a tool? So the law is going to have to be careful on this and we want to navigate it. Now, my suggestion would be, um, and this is early, so I, I could easily mod this suggestion in a couple of months as I see it through because it's kind of like these human dynamics of, you know, protecting the intellectual work of human beings to be able to have the incentive to do it. It's part of the reason why we we have the those laws in the first place. And I want to do it. I would tend to say that that you have to kind of disclose uh, that you're using the tools. You have to be clear that it's in the style of when you produce data. Uh, just like robots.txt of can you search, you know, put it in a search engine or not. You have to say, can you use this for a training run or not? And, you know, contact me if you want to use it. You know, that kind of stuff I think is is part of what I think elements of the future probably look like. Yep. This is maybe one uh, place where I'm not overly optimistic is the the law catching up in time. We haven't seen good examples of that, but maybe we'll we'll be surprised this time around. Okay, and perfect segue to the audiobook because clearly you are embracing this. So tell us who's going to be narrating the audio version of the book. So um, one of the internal products that Microsoft has is a incredibly good voice cloning product, which I think they are unlikely to release because they want to be good to all the creators and so forth, and they don't want to have people uh, voice cloning other people. But I, I went to them and I said, look, this product is really amazing. I've just done this book. Can I use this product to voice clone myself? Because it's me voice cloning me to do this. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, and uh, I, I think it'll be out pretty soon. We are uh, cross-checking. It is, it is where, you know, we're the, the product alpha test because it was like, oh, the pronunciation of this unusual name uh, not quite right. <laughs> right. Uh, and there'll be some of those errors anyway. But, you know, it's it, it'll it, uh, hopefully it will amaze and delight. By the way, that voice cloning thing is I, I, I hate to take us down the dark side again, but that is one of the spooky things. I heard uh, Nikesh Arora say that someone, you know, some people were doing that voice cloning to trick people into moving money around, you know, to do cyber yeah. attacks. A hundred percent. But by the way, again, when you say, well, AI is part of the solution. You have an AI assistant running on your phone that says, wait a minute, are you sure about this? This could be a phishing attack. And that's part of the reason why I think the good actor is moving faster uh, to build up the defenses. But yeah. that is definitely, you know, one of the, like a whole bunch of cyber hacking is amongst the things. Human amplification, amplification of bad humans and bad activity is precisely one of the things that we should be most worried about when we're talking about the risks. So what you're saying is that we're setting the stage for just this massive battle between good AI and bad AI. That's what's going to happen, basically. <laughs> or or AI in the hands of good humans and the AI in the hands of bad humans. Amplification. Okay. Yes. All goes back yeah. to that. Reed, thank you so much. I feel like we could go on and on. We all have so many questions about this. This is the big question 
for all of us, you know, and, and, and I think not only the business world, but, but beyond. So thank you for shedding some light on amplification intelligence. That's what we're supposed to call it, right? Yes. <laughs> and I can't wait for the audiobook. I'm going to spend some time with that Reed Hoffman clone. And I look forward to your feedback. Um, <laughs> we'll tell you which me. one we like better. <laughs> Uh-oh. That, that, the, I might be scared to hear that, but I'd be delighted. <laughs> Thank you, Reed. Thanks. Thank you. Leadership Next is produced by Alexis Hot and edited by Nicole Vergala. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Our executive producer is Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. For even more Fortune content, use the promo code LN25. That'll get you 25% off our annual subscription at fortune.com forward slash subscribe. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 